I had a couple of possibilities tonight, depending on who was here. And what I've decided on, because of the type of audience that we've got, uh, that uh, you all are involved in uh, uh, helping to teach others, wanting to learn more to, to better teach others about Christianity. So I'm going to take, and when we have a gathering like this, give a synopsis of uh, some exceptionally good books in the field of evidences that, you know, that I'd like to try to persuade you to purchase if you don't already have it. Uh, the one tonight is, uh, a, this guy, this book initially came out called Ancient History and uh, Jesus, and the book has been redid. I don't know if, uh, Mark, you have the first edition or not before the redoing of the book, The Verdict of History by Gary Habermas. And it says, uh, Conclusive Evidence for the Life of Christ. Uh, ver the Verdict of History. Uh, depending on how much that you read and, and keep up with what's going on in the various magazines, newspapers, uh, the, any of the religious sources and all, do you realize that our society is becoming more and more pagan? And by pagan, I just simply mean anti-Christian. Anything that would not be Christian would be uh, classified as, as pagan in the, in the Christian use of the word. But it's becoming more and more pagan. That uh, uh, a smaller and smaller percentage of the people are actually reading the Bible. A smaller and smaller percentage of children are going to Bible schools and and being taught much about the Bible, and we are actually uh, in the process of producing a generation that simply has very little knowledge or very little respect for the Bible. Uh, that uh, in our society now, even though we've come a long ways, we still have a number of middle to older age people who, even if they have left uh, certain things so far as Christianity, they have certain emotional ties and their conscience were formed by information they studied when they was younger. The next generation coming up, uh, we might call it the TV generation, the uh, generation where mama has not been home with the children and things like that, that is going to be a, a generation that, uh, that does not have that same kind of emotional tie. And they're going to be more and more that simply do not have any real knowledge of the Bible. The church as a whole, and when I use the church, I'm using it uh, of those people who believe uh, in the deity of Jesus and salvation in him. The church has been, in the United States, has been very slow uh, to respond to the change in our population. And as a result, the majority of churches actually are either static or losing members. And even those that are, are growing are not really keeping pace with the growth in population in this country. And so that uh, Christians who believe in the inspiration of the Bible and the deity of Jesus uh, make up a smaller and smaller percentage of our population. And as that happens, they will have less and less influence uh, on various things within our, within our country. There's going to be a number of changes. Uh, for example, in the first century, no Jew would have, sent his, would have sent his child to school to be taught by a Gentile who did not believe in God. They schooled their own children. Uh, in our society, in the past, uh, public education, although it was public education and operated by the state, was comprised 
mainly of teachers who had a, a, on the whole, had a very high degree of respect for the Bible, most of whom have been Christians, and uh, the initial readers and books were edited and written by people who had, at the very least, a high degree of respect for the Bible. And so we have sent our children into that, into that environment. Uh, that was a school that I went to uh, in, in high school. Uh, this was 1957 when I graduated. The, the Bible was still read over the intercom each morning, and they had prayer before they started school. And this was just a, uh, a public high school. Um, any event had prayer and some, some statement. Uh, uh, the elementary school that, was, that I went to, there was some teaching of ethics with the Bible as a base at some point, in, generally to start the day, the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, and then some statement there. That's not so now. And the young people now who send their children uh, into the public school system are going to find something quite different. Uh, the older teachers and the middle-aged and all, again, still for the most part, have a respect for the Bible and for that system of morality. Uh, the younger ones coming out of college are not near as knowledgeable, are not near as respectful, and they are forming the core of the teachers. And everything about the public school system is becoming more and more anti-Christian. I mean aggressively anti-Christian. Uh, I'm talking about the content of the stories uh, that children read, uh, the science book, the sociology books. For example, you can study American history. Uh, I taught uh, eighth grade for a number of years before becoming principal. Uh, you can look at the American history books, and, and you would never get the impression that religion has had much influence at all in this country, or that, that a, the biggest percent of the population have been Christians and who have been influenced by that. You would never gather uh, that impression by, by reading uh, the social study and the history book. They've, they've done all they could to just literally take religion out. The readers used to have stories with morals that uh, uh, now it's, it's just simply not that way. Uh, if it's a moral, it's designed to promote, for example, the equality of the sexes. You might have a woman up on the roof, fixing the roof, and the man down there washing the uh, dishes in that story. Uh, you might have something uh, uh, talking about uh, uh, homosexuals as an alternative, uh, alternate lifestyle. Uh, those kinds of things are the values that are being pushed in our, our society today. So your child will go to school, and your children's children in a completely different situation. And it's changed in college also. And even the college I went to that uh, is early in the 60s, I, I sat in a, a class in Middle Tennessee and listened to a professor refer to Jesus as the bastard son of a Roman soldier. Uh, I heard another history professor talk about all the myths in the, in the Bible. And this went unchallenged. Uh, I sat another class on diplomatic history and it was the concurrence of the entire class, except for myself and one other person who was a Baptist minister, that in diplomacy, countries had to lie, that you just simply could not be uh, truthful all the time, that, that lying had to be accepted as a, as a reality. And that was part of the ethics of, of that course. So everything is changing. Well, here's the problem. Uh, as Christians uh, fight this change in our society, and you can listen to the Christian response in their letters to the editor. Uh, anytime there's a, a publication that comes out or an anti-Christian article, I always read the letters to the editor the following week. The, the people that are responding for Christianity 
are, are responding with the assumption that uh, everybody believes in God, and if they don't, they're crazy. You know, everybody believes the Bible, and, and it's just crazy not to believe it. But they're speaking to an audience who's not operating uh, on, on that assumption. All right, now the interesting thing is that, and I'm saying that we are still trying to teach Christianity for the most part. There's a lot of very positive, good exceptions to this. But for the most part, we're still trying to teach it as if our society as a whole believed in the Bible and believed in Jesus and, and just believed in Christianity. It's just a matter of time before they obey the gospel, and that's, that's just simply not our, our society. But it's interesting that the society that Christianity had its birth in was 100% anti-Christian. Nobody was brought up as a Christian. And everybody that was ever converted had to be dealt with on the basis that they not only had no belief in Jesus, they thought the resurrection maybe sounded ridiculous. And many of them, most had no belief in the true God, an understanding of the true God. And yet in that environment, Christianity conquered the society and became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Well, then obviously the ammunition is there. Uh, and when you read from people like Justin Martyr and some of the other uh, early Christians, you find that their writings are just full of evidences. Uh, they thought in terms of evidences. The, the New Testament thinks in terms of, of evidences for the, for the Christian faith. Uh, statements like, just believe and let Jesus come into your heart. You'll never find that in the Bible. And you'll never find those kind of statements in early Christian writings. Uh, it's the product of, of preaching uh, from individuals that are used to speaking to people who already believe the Bible, and therefore they feel no obligation to, to prove anything in that realm. All right, we all need to become aware of a lot of very good information that's out there and learn how to handle this material uh, from the standpoint of talking to people without assuming that they believe in the, in the inspirational Bible. Now, this book here, this is one of my favorite authors, Gary Habermas, because whatever the subject he deals with in Christianity in the books, this is the third one that I've read from him, uh, he deals with it without any assumptions whatsoever that you believe in God or that you believe in the Bible. He, he deals with it from the standpoint that he has to document and prove every single solitary point. And that is, and so therefore I'm saying the, when you read this, not just the information is important, but that line of thinking and how to develop that line of thinking is important because this is the way Christianity is going to be presented. If it, if it uh, wins out in this country, it will be presented in this way. And, and, to the, and if it's not, it will not win out uh, in, in the long run. Uh, the evidence is there. The, the, what the evidence cannot do, though, is just hop into the minds of people without Christians taking the time to study it and investigate it and then put it in their mind. Now keep in mind that some Christians will listen to what I've just said, and they'll think, well, wait a minute, I don't know all that evidence, you know, that I've never read these historical sources or archaeological sources that you're going to talk about, and I don't know a whole lot about science and, and the theory of organic evolution, and yet I believe. Well, I'm not challenging. Many of those people that say that are, are right. They do believe. But they might be compared, compared to, a, to a person who, uh, uh, let's say that... Uh, that here's a person that has known Mark for 10 years. 
And so all their experience with Mark is that he is an honest person, he's a good husband, a good father, uh, he supports his family, uh, he's decent in all their experience with him. And then there's a lot of negative rumors that they come in contact with about Mark. Well, they're not going to buy into those negative rumors. They're going to defend him because their experience has been very positive with him. And they're going to say, well, that's totally out of character with him. That's just not so. I'll never believe that unless there is conclusive evidence to prove that he's that type of person. Okay? But the individual that doesn't know Mark, and doesn't know him at all, and he hears all these negative things floating around, uh, he's going to become very suspicious of Mark. And he, Mark's not going to be the first person he hires if he's looking for somebody to fill a, a particular position because he has no past positive experience, okay? With all these negative things floating around about Christianity and about God, the person who has been brought up in a Christian environment and who has maybe seen parents live a certain type of life and reap the results, uh, who has actually, uh, even imperfect as it might be, put the Christian principles to practice in their own life and see that they worked, work, and has observed uh, families out here who are operating by the principles of Christianity and contrasted that with the other, and who has read the Bible and fell in love with the personality of Christ, and knows something about the claim to prophecy and, and the eyewitness to the resurrection and things like that, at least has those things in his mind, well then, grant you, that person can hear a lot of negative things and just push them aside and say, well, that's silly, uh, you know, because he has this positive background. But what if you don't have that positive background about the Bible and you hear a man with a doctor's degree in history uh, stand up in your class and say that Jesus is the bastard son of a Roman soldier and proceed to give his evidence for that. And you hear another man with a doctor's degree in history talk about how many myths there are in the Bible. And you listen to people who have doctor's degrees in science uh, who talk about the myth of the Genesis account and will cut the Bible down in, on other criteria. And you listen to some of the intelligent, well-educated lawyers of the ACLU as they make their derogatory statements about religion. And then you watch your heroes on TV. And one thing that's pretty obvious about most of them, and that is that uh, Christianity really doesn't control their life. You know, they're out here marrying and remarrying and marrying and remarrying and, and going with who they want to and sleeping with whom they want to. And, and, and they're the heroes, you know. And so in that environment, then somebody comes along and says, hey, Jesus is the son of God. And he, this is the good news. He's raised from the dead. The Bible's inspired. Well, you've got a tremendous amount of skepticism. There's a good chance you'll just push that aside. Like, well, that's your opinion. You're gullible. You've been brought up in it. And, and that's fine. And there's a good chance that you'll just simply push that aside. So, you and I, if you have a background that's Christian, are gonna, if we're going to be effective in reaching these people, are going to have to develop the ability to step out of our own environment and to put ourselves in the position of other individuals and then begin to look at information that is, that is important to them. All right, now, if you were to... Uh, get into a discussion with an educated person who was an unbeliever in Jesus, you would hear various theories to explain the resurrection. One, the swoon theory, for example, that he never really died, uh, that, he, that they thought he was dead and, and they took him off the cross and, and then he actually came to and, and made some appearances. That was popular for many years. Uh, the fact that the disciples or somebody stole the body away 
uh, and, and that was the cause of the empty tomb. The, those, those theories are, are postulated also. Uh, the fact that, that they hallucinated uh, the apostles and saw uh, Jesus. Uh, uh, the apostle Paul had had so many Christians put to death and thrown in jail that his conscience was bothering him, and, and he actually hallucinated on the road to Damascus. And so these, they have explanations for these particular things. And then there will be statements like, you can't even prove that Jesus was a real historical character. I don't even believe that he lived or existed. Or, or uh, how can you be sure that those New Testament documents are, are really what Jesus said, that they're accurately recorded? I mean, after all, they're full of contradictions. I can show you contradictions between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, etc. Et well, these are the things that uh, will be said by educated people who are speaking against Christianity and who are in an aggressive way fighting uh, Christianity and our system. And so we've got a choice. We can sit back and say, hey, they're just ungodly and, and, and go our way, or we can uh, go for the information that's necessary to be able to not just talk to these people, but we need more Christians that can write decent letters to the editor where they do a good job explaining uh, the situation of why they believe, or if you're caught in a conversation, or you're sitting in a classroom, that and that kind of thing comes up, that you can do a good job of handling the the premise from a from a Christian standpoint. Uh, this here is a good starting. It it's it's very easy reading. Uh, it's it's quick reading, and uh, and yet it's 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 exceptionally good, and it's a good starter. I don't know. Uh, did you read his book on the ancient life of Christ, Mark? Okay. This is a, uh, just an, I'd say, a, a step up or an improvement on that particular material and the way that he handled it. Uh, Mark, I don't know, have you read this? Or yeah, I've got that. On, the, on this one here or the ancient? That, yeah. You've got that. Have you read it yet? Yes. Okay, that's good. And, buddy, have you heard, have you come in contact with no. it yet? Mark? Not that particular, no. Okay, Jack? Okay. All right, now. First of all, uh, just from your own thinking, uh, if somebody poses uh, the swoon theory to you, in the very posing of that swoon theory, what have they actually acknowledged? That Jesus was crucified. Okay. If, uh, if this guy with a doctor's degree in history or philosophy uh, poses the swoon theory that Jesus didn't really die and they took him down and buried him. Um, what he has said to you is that I acknowledge that the crucifixion of Jesus is a historical event. He's also said I acknowledge that they did bury him. And what else has he acknowledged? He lived. Where well, he lived. And what else has he acknowledged? What about the empty tomb? So in, here's a guy that has a theory, but yet his theory is, is, is worth looking at. And so you pause and you, you say to this person, uh, you, know, that's, you know, that theory's been around a long time. The truth is that the swoon theory was first actively posed by liberal theologians in the last century. But it's interesting that liberal, the, liberal theologians, not conservative, but liberal theologians of the 20th century have completely kicked it out. They don't believe it. And so the swoon theory, and so the first thing you could say, number one, do you realize what you're acknowledging in the swoon theory? You're acknowledging that uh, Jesus lived, uh, that he was crucified, uh, that there was an empty tomb, 
and he was alive later. You've, you've acknowledged uh, all of that. And then say, uh, do you realize that the, even the liberal theologians of the 20th century reject the Swoon theory? There's nobody alive that believes it uh, of, uh, from a theologian standpoint. Uh, have you ever wondered why that the even liberal theologians reject that theory? Now, keep in mind also on posing a theory about anything. Uh, you can pose a theory about anything under the sun, correct? I can uh, tell you that uh, something happened. And uh, there's parts of it you're willing to accept and parts of it that you just don't want to buy into. So you can listen to me and listen to several others. And then you can postulate a theory and, says, and say that, well, I believe such and such. What's to keep you from doing that? You can. There is nothing uh, uh, that you can uh, not postulate a theory on. Tomorrow, I just got called a little over an hour ago uh, about a man in the community that shot himself, and they asked me to do the funeral tomorrow at 5.30. Well, everybody that wants to can postulate a theory as to why he shot himself. I mean, that's, uh, uh, he, he may have actually towed and left a note. I don't know. But everybody, no matter, even if he leaves a note, you can still postulate a theory. Okay, so that's, that's all. You can do that on anything. So, the next statement of the person is, well, why did the liberal theologians reject, you know, that particular thing? All right, then the person that says that, well, I believe the, the body of Jesus was stolen. Uh, that, I mean, that's the early report of the Jews, and the Jews held on to that for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries that the body was stolen. Well, what have they acknowledged there? In that... Okay. They, they've said he was crucified, uh, and not only that, they've even said he was killed. Now, it's interesting because uh, we get back to this, the swoon theory. <laughs> The Jews who were there agreed with the Christians and the Romans that Jesus was dead. The swoon theory did not take place in the first century. Uh, so the, we're saying the people involved in the first century, all the Romans, the Jews, the Christians, all acknowledged that Jesus was dead. So here are the Jews who actually would love to refute Christianity and the, those that rejected in the first century, which was the majority, and they don't even buy into the swoon theory. That uh, they, their first thing they went out was they stole the body. So what have they said when they said they stole? They said that the Jews who are not Christian have said, yes, they crucified Jesus, yes, they killed him, he was dead, and yes, the tomb was empty. Okay? So the death, the burial, and the empty tomb have been acknowledged by the strongest enemies of Christianity, and that is the Jews that actually rejected him. All right, now, another interesting thing. Can I, can I ask you a quick Mark? question. Um, you know, they, we, we know from the Bible that it says that, that they, um, when they prepared his body, they wrapped him with, what, 75 pounds? Mm-hmm. Is that linen? And... Linen and uh, mirth and aloes. In other words, they embalmed the body. They would pour all the stuff. Joseph and uh, Nicodemus. Nicodemus took the body and fixed it according to the Jewish burial. And actually, they didn't. Even, they were going to do even more. The women had come to the tomb to finish, you know, on the body. I, I was just wondering if, if that could tie in in terms of evidence against the swing theory. If 
could a person, even if, let's say they were unconscious or in a coma or something like that, and, and they were wrapped in that much material, would they be able to breathe or revive through Okay, that? now that's a good point, but the, what you're saying is exactly true. They couldn't. You know, obviously they couldn't. But, see what you're doing now, then you're using the new, the only source that he was uh, uh, had embalmed in that way with 75 pounds, all like that, is in the New Testament. So, so then that person's going to say, well, obviously the Christians wrote it that way, but that really wasn't the way that it was. And so, but what you've done now is if you've, you've taken two theories by unbelievers, the Jews who rejected Christ, who were right there, and then liberal theologians, and others bought into this with the Swoon Theory, and you've showed that the Jews acknowledge his death, his burial, and the empty tomb, and the Swoon acknowledges the fact that he was crucified, uh, the fact that they put him in the tomb, and the fact that he was alive. Okay, And then we've also pointed out, without going to the Bible at all, that for some reason, liberal theologians cast aside the swoon theory. Nobody believes it anymore. There's no historian that believes the swoon theory. No historian. All right, now, the Jews' statement that went out that the body of Jesus was stolen, there's nobody that believes that now. And so even the Jews today will acknowledge that this was erroneous, that they were grabbing at straws, that that, that is not the explanation. So the point is, you don't even have to go to Christian writings or to the Bible to refute those two theories because the, the people that posed it, non-Christians, also defeated it. And so non-Christian historians and theologians have already rejected that. But yet we have noted some very interesting facts that they acknowledge in, in that point. Now, when we, when we mention about the, the, the way the body was embalmed and everything, we're not saying that that isn't a fact that can be used in all. Uh, because the, the truth is there is no piece of documents from all ancient history that is so uh, corroborated by all the evidences and so circulated uh, with so many copies where everybody was alive that was involved in events and so trustworthily handed down as the New Testament. And the interesting thing is uh, that some of the historians that are non-Christian they will receive statements from non-Christian sources that don't even have a fraction of the evidence behind it, but will receive it and, and yet reject, you know, a Christian source. All right, and eventually we're going to get to that document, but right now that's, that's why, that, you know, I wouldn't use it. Yeah. All right, now, what he does in here, he sets out to demonstrate that you can use absolutely nothing except historical facts that even non-believing scholars will accept and demonstrate the resurrection of Christ. In other words, the, the, the evidence is, is so strong uh, on, the, on that behalf. Okay, you have those theories now of, of Christ, and we pointed out that they um, defeated, the people that pose it, uh, wind up defeating the theories, and yet they make some interesting admissions uh, in the process. Now, another statement along with this is that, well, you don't read about Jesus outside the New Testament. And those are Christian documents. They're biased. They're, they're written by people that believe in order to promote belief. Now, there is something here that I think Christians have not done well enough 
that we've ex we have let people get by with making that statement that uh, that uh, these are biased documents by people that believe. But then let's think a little further. What about the New Testament? Uh, what about the authors of the New Testament? What is their background? What was uh, okay? They were Jews. Was there? Uh, was the Jesus of the New Testament the Jesus that those people were looking forward to? Yeah. It wasn't. Uh, was uh, any of the apostles gung-ho about a crucified Messiah? They, uh, uh, was the apostle Paul biased in favor of Jesus? Uh, Luke was a, who wrote Luke and Acts is a Gentile. He's a well-educated man. He's a doctor. Uh, you can look at the document of Luke and Acts, and a Greek scholar will tell you the person who wrote Luke and Acts is very well educated and has a large vocabulary. Uh, a person who doesn't even know Paul can, who can read his letters and say, hey, this guy's intelligent. He's logical. Uh, he, he thinks very deeply. Uh, he's well organized in his uh, thinking. Uh, so that, I mean, we just notice those things from the material. And, not one of these people were biased in favor of Christ. They were biased against him. So the response to these people would first be to the, on the New Testament that this is written by people who were themselves skeptics and unbelievers in the deity of Christ and who only as a result of evidence became believers. And what they are doing in this document is they're trying to relate to you the evidence that caused them to come from unbelief to believe. And so it's not a, a biased group of people saying that we're going to do such and such and, and we're going to conjure up this. You've got some reluctant Christians uh, who are biased against the information, but the ev they have found the evidence so absolutely overwhelming that they have become believers themselves, and now they are writing. In other words... Uh, when you think of Paul, you could think of him in terms of a C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist for a period of time, uh, John Clayton, or Hugh Ross, or people like that. Uh, John, now, Paul was never an atheist, but Paul was an unbeliever so far as Christ was concerned. He disbelieved that as strong as anybody could. And so these are people that really disbelieved that, and they were very reluctant all the way through to accept it. And, and those were the ones that, that wrote the documents. Okay, uh, then the statement then is, but we're not going to use the New Testament. We'll just let that slide, you know, but, but yet you, I'm saying you can make that observation when you're talking to somebody, when they say that, well, sure, the New Testament teaches that and it's written by Christians. I say not in the sense you think of Christian. You think of Christians as people in our society that's been brought up in a certain way and they have certain feelings and all. The writers in the New Testament were not brought up to believe in Jesus. They did not believe in him. They were very skeptical. They were very reluctant. Uh, uh, he, he was not the Messiah they were looking forward to, and yet despite all of their negative feelings against what he was, they became 100% believers, and they're now relating to you the evidence that caused them uh, to be a believer in him. Okay, now, the next thing, though, that you, you go and the person says, well, if, uh, if Jesus is so important, and he's raised from the dead, and he's the son of God, uh, and, and he did all these miracles and all of this, you know, and, and, he, and, this, and, and he left behind this material 
that uh, you would think that there would be a, a whole lot about him in history outside the Bible, and there's very little. And why is it that when there's not a whole lot about him uh, in history, in fact, some would say, and we can discredit that, that there's none, but uh, Mark, I've just made that statement to you. How do you handle that? That uh, Jesus is literally the Son of God. He performed all those miracles, uh, raised from the dead. Uh, when I go back and study secular history and the, the Roman historians, the Greek historians, and the Jewish historians, why don't I find more about him? Well, first of all, what you don't find a lot written from that period of history at all. And, I mean, you take any person that lived during that time period, you're not going to find very much written about anybody. And uh, also, all the writers from that period outside of the Bible were, were unbelievers. So they're not going to mention something that happened. The Roman historians are not going to mention a whole lot about what happened over in Judea. And so you just wouldn't expect it outside of the Bible. And most of the stuff that was written hasn't been transmitted down through time. Okay, now... When Mark says that uh, there wasn't a lot written in the first century, we today live in a world of the printing press, Xerox copiers, etc. But uh, remember, in the first century, uh, all written material was handwritten. How many books do you think are, are available when all material is handwritten? If you had a copy of something like this, somebody would have handwritten it. That'd been one copy. And then there's no copy machine. If you want another copy, somebody's got to handwrite uh, that material. So all materials are, are handwritten. And so there is a very limited amount in comparison now to what we have today. There's no printing press, very limited amount. All right, now, in the United States, could a, a person be a very devout preacher who leads thousands of people to believe in Christ and never be on the national news or never be in the national magazines or not be in the American history books? You could. Because it, they're not concerned with that, are they? They're, they're really not concerned. But what if uh, the, this devout preacher that does this, uh, well, for example, uh, why is Martin Luther King? He will be in the history book. There, there, there will be preachers who converted a whole lot more than Martin Luther King, preached more sermons than he did, wrote more books, did more reading, more study, had more influence on the Christian community. Martin Luther King had very little influence on the Christian community. But Martin Luther King is in the history book. Why? He was in the middle of a social controversy that affected unbelievers as well as believers. Okay. He was in the middle of a social controversy and one of the leaders that affected a lot of people, believers and, and unbelievers. Uh, he became very important in the political realm, and then he went to his death. Now, Martin Luther, before he got involved and started stirring up riots and got involved in politics and before he was killed, how important was he in America? I don't know if I ever read about him. I don't know what he did. You've probably never heard of him, but in fact, he could have lived his life and maybe converted 50 times more people than he did and written some books and never made the history. Okay, then when you think of Jesus roaming around Palestine, here he is 
Galilee of the Gentiles, where he starts his teaching. Israel is one little country that Rome has conquered among many. And Israel's about the size of New, Jersey's, uh, New Jersey. And so there are all kinds of rabbis that are teaching. What interest do you think that the Caesar in Rome are the top Roman historians at that time have in a Jewish rabbi who has no material possessions and no power, who's roaming around the countryside teaching people to love one another and to repent of their sins and things of that nature. What interest do you think they have of it? But what happens whenever there begins to be riots because of this man? Now Rome is interested. Okay. So what you find is exactly what you expect. When you, when you go to history, you're not going to find any secular sources dealing with Jesus at the time that he walked around and was with the disciples and speaking to the Jewish multitudes and things like that. But whenever they began to have riots and, and whenever he was, got to the point that the Jewish leaders wanted him put to death and so that Rome had to execute him, well, then that's when he makes his interest in Roman history. At the point of his execution and any time that there are riots and conflict uh, concerning him or whatever he believed. In other words, in the, in the same way he would make the nightly news uh, here, here in America with, with that kind of thing. That's the way he made the, the Roman history. But there, there are some things there. And so now he does a, a very good job of, of, of just gleaming the sources and giving some key, some key uh, comments. This one here is from Tacitus, uh, who's a Roman historian from 55 to 120 A.D. Okay, now, Jesus was crucified about 30 A.D. I use the corrected calendar when I say that. Uh, and uh, Christianity spread. Uh, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. This guy is born in 55 A.D. Uh, he's born right about about the time that Paul's writing the Corinthian letter. Uh, the Galatian letter has already been written. Uh, there's a good chance that 1 Thessalonians has maybe been written, although that's, that's debatable. Uh, Christianity is in the process of spreading. It's, it's gone to the Gentiles, and that's when Cornelius is born. Okay, when would, what contact, what concern would he have about the Christianity? Well, notice his reference to Christianity. During, he, he writes in his annals concerning the reign of Nero. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Nero was being blamed with setting Rome afire. And so the Christians were a hated group of people, and so it said that... Uh, that uh, Nero fixed the blame on Christians. Christians, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, the arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city 
as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished. They were nailed to crosses. They were doomed to flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or stood aloft in a car. Hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary <laughs> punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion, for it was not as it seemed for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. Okay, you can see that really Tacitus doesn't know a lot about Christianity, but he's telling you that Nero was killing Christians by the, we can only guess how many. He said he's lit his garden with Christians burning at the stake. He's crucified them. He's put them in the arena and turned animals loose on them, uh, that they are a hated group of people. And so uh, what happens now under Nero really catches the attention of even Tacitus and others. But notice some things he did state about Christianity. He stated, stated that uh, Jesus was executed when Tiberius was emperor, right when the New, place, New Testament places him. Uh, he was executed under Pontius Pilate. But then remember what, after the execution under Pontius Pilate, then what happened? Did you catch that part? Superstition was checked. Checked for, for the moment, and then? Broke out again. Broke out again. So that's interesting, doesn't it? Uh, that here's a guy that says that, that this religion, uh, that the, he was gathering a following, uh, it was spreading, they executed him. In the execution of him, it checked it for the moment. But then it broke out and began to spread again. Well, then the question becomes, what caused that? We thought we had it checked. And so what caused it to break out and start spreading? Isn't it interesting that you kill the leader and it breaks out and it starts spreading more than it's ever spread before? Okay, now, along with, uh, let's see, uh, there's more there by Tacitus. Here's Sidonicus. Uh, and he again writes uh, in the early 100s and he refers to a wave of riots that broke out in a large Jewish community in Rome during the year 49 AD. As a result, the Jews were banished from the city. So here's Sidonicus. He said in 49 AD a riot broke out under Claudius goes on to say under Claudius and as a result now, that uh, Jews are banished from the city of Rome. Okay, open your Bible to Acts 18, 1 and 2. Okay, uh, Barbara, would you read that, please? After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Okay. So you read in the, in the New Testament that Claudius had ordered all Jews out of Rome, and here you have Paul then hooking up with Aquila and Priscilla, and they're going into Corinth. Well, this is early 50s, 50, 51 A.D. Uh, in, in Acts. And so then you've got Sidonicus, uh, who is allowing us to know that in A.D. 49, 
that as a result of the riots that were breaking out, that he just simply banished all the Jews from Rome, kicked them out. And he goes on to explain that these riots had to do with some kind of argument about Christus or Christ, you know. So here, we can, here we've got a, again, we said that Jesus will make his name in Roman history in the same way Martin Luther King does in American history, when you would expect it. And so what we can see here in 49 is there was tremendous debate and argument among the Jews about certain things of Jesus. And the rioting became so bad that he just flat kicked the whole group out of the city. So what we have there in the secular historical thing, again, perfectly fits what we have there. And then Tacitus, when he said he was executed, he was checked for a moment, but then he broke out again. Perfectly fits what we have in Jesus being crucified. Everybody thought it was over. And then whammo, they found out that he was, he was just getting started at, at that point. Okay, now, uh, let's see. Uh, all right, now, don't ever make the mistake, as I've done in the past until I checked it out, and of course this guy does a good job with it. Josephus, the Jewish historian, uh, makes some statements about Jesus. But the, the one that is quoted most often, all evidence is, it's an interpolation, that Christians actually change the material in the document. For example, they've got Josephus saying this. Josephus now is not a Christian. He's a Jewish historian in the first century. There was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be persons trying to prove their point, they grab every favorable thing they can. But if you've got 50 concrete evidences and one of them is a, is a real weak old that's not really so, and you present your case uh, to the jury, What's the opposing law you're going to do? Grab that one. He's going to grab that one and go after it. I remember uh, uh, years back, I had, I had a number of, well, I had four public debates. And I can remember uh, uh, there was a man that I studied with, an older man who had had a number of debates. And I can remember him talking with me on helping me to present my case in, in, in public debates. And he said, never use a weak argument. He said, even if you believe it yourself, if, if you cannot substantiate it in a concrete way, never use it. Because said the other side, you may present a, a, a whole slew of just tremendous evidences, but the other side will grab the weakest link and spend every bit of their time right there. And so sometimes Christians have done this. Now, John Clayton does a good job on the existence of God of pointing out the damage sometimes that Christians have done through the years, believers have, in taking actually erroneous arguments that they wanted to believe and, and using it. And this statement by Josephus, all evidence is that it is interpolation. I don't believe that Josephus wrote it, wrote it himself. And so there's no, there's no sense in using that. I mean, there's, number one, there's no need for it. So why use something just because it's, it's favorable? Now, this was interesting to me because uh, that we knew, see, Josephus did make several statements about Jesus. And all historians will acknowledge that. The question is, they, they knew that this had been tampered with. They could tell from the context that he made statements. Well, in 1972, a professor, Shilomo Pines, at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, 
released the results of a study on an Arabic manuscript containing Josephus' statement about Jesus. So since this, there's been found an Arabic manuscript of Jesus containing it, and even this Jewish scholar acknowledges this is the way that it should have been in the first place, that the other one in the Greek, when it was translated from Aramaic to Greek, was tampered with. At this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good. He was known to be virtuous. Many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, and those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them uh, three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps a Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. So notice, he doesn't state that he believes this, but he states it as something that, that, that has been reported. But it, it makes you, you can see that Josephus, writing in the first century, is aware of this information and is, and is concerned that, and, and is bearing witness that there were many people who believed in Jesus. He had a reputation as being a virtuous and a wise person. And keep in mind, even when they crucified him, it wasn't for any lack of virtue or wisdom. It was because he claimed to be the Son of God, and that was blasphemy. And that's what the multitude crucified him on. But anyway, go ahead. How about some of the other <coughs> statements that uh, Josephus records about Herod becoming violently ill? Okay, that right, that's about? right. The Herod, he's simply recording history. Now, that's another event. In fact, that's not in this book here. But the, mention, the, the event Barbara mentioned is that you read in Acts 12, where Herod is addressing the people and they're proclaiming him as a god and the Bible says an angel smote him and that he died. Well, Josephus records that event in much more detail than what's in the book of Acts. And he said that Herod was addressing the people, they were proclaiming him as a god. He tells in much more detail than the New Testament how he was all decked out and dressed. And then it said he became violently ill and he died over a period of five days and the worms literally ate his bowels out. But that was a Again, by Herod, who was totally, uh, by Josephus, totally unaware of what's in the, the New Testament when he records that event. Does, uh, does he also um, record the darkness that appeared over there? Not Josephus. Okay. But now with Josephus, another thing he records, Josephus records about John the Baptist and how that Herod had him put to death and, and, and again gives more detail than what you have in the Bible. All right, all of those references are unquestioned. I mean, they're just relating, relating the historical event, and the Jews will acknowledge that and all. But in this other one, where they've got him making those real positive statements about Jesus, Josephus was not a Christian. We don't even need him to make any positive statements. When we read something by an unbeliever, and what we're wanting is acknowledgement of certain events. You know, what they believe about it is not even our concern. We're wanting acknowledgement that certain things actually happened, that he did exist and he lived and he was crucified and there was an empty tomb and, and, the, and the movement spread again and there was a change in lives and things like that. Well, those are the kind of things that, that secular historians can record as a matter of fact, and yet we can see how it correlates with what's in the New Testament. Uh, there's another quote from a, going back to 52 AD uh, from a fellow by the name of Phallus, and this is quoted in uh, another work in Julius Afghanus, who is quoting from him in the 200s, and he mentions about a debate between him and a, 
and an unbeliever over the darkness that came over the earth at that, that particular time. All right, now here's a, another comment. Pliny the Younger, who wrote a number of letters, and Pliny writes and mentions about the Christian influence, and he said that the Christian influence was so strong that the pagan temples had been nearly deserted. Pagan festivals severely decreased, and the sacrificial animals had few buyers. Because of the inflexibility of Christians and the emperor's prohibition against political association, Governor Pliny took action against the Christian. But because he was unsure of how to deal with believers, if there should be any distinctions in treatment or if repentance made any difference, he wrote the emperor Trajan. We have this letter. But notice what has happened now. Here you've got Pliny the Younger writing a letter, and he's telling you that Christianity is being so successful in the Roman Empire that the pagan temples have just about been deserted, and that very few sacrifices are even been offered. And this now is in the second century, the 100s, and that uh, he's real concerned that Christianity is literally eating up the Roman Empire. And we're going to be kind of seeing more and more concern now, so far as the Roman writers, because of the tremendous effect that Christianity is having in the Roman world. But here again, let's pause and think about this. Uh, if you're looking at this as just a person who's really not, uh, not read the Bible yet, and, and we're just looking at this information, does that say anything to you that uh, uh, what we've read so far by Titus having made those observations that uh, uh, concerning Christianity, Sotonicus made those observations, uh, Josephus the observations, uh, Pliny made that observations about the temple. From a purely historical standpoint, all from unbelievers, what have we learned? They were operating in Okay, it's uh, the interpretation may not be one of belief, but they're corroborating exactly what we would expect. And not only that, they're saying it the way we would expect them to say it, wouldn't we? And, and look at what we've nailed down from them. Do they acknowledge that Jesus lived? Well, you won't find anybody that says he doesn't. Then the, that uh, You might find somebody today saying, I don't believe that he lived. Well, big deal. Uh, Nishki didn't believe he existed. You know, that, uh, that's, that's fine. But he did. And so they said he lived. He was considered a wise person. He was considered to have lived a virtuous life. Uh, he was crucified. Uh, he was buried. Uh, the tomb was empty. Uh, the Jews that were there and tried to discredit him acknowledged that he was dead and tried to pose a theory about the disciples still in the uh, body away. We've acknowledged that shortly after they crucified him, that this thing began to spread again. At first it was checked and it began to spread. But then we come down just uh, a couple of generations, and what about the spreading of this thing? According to their own, it's eating up the Roman Empire. And uh, people are deserting the temples, and they're not offering sacrifices. And Christianity is becoming the dominant religion in the Roman world. Well, then the question is, how, did this, how does this happen? Uh, that, that's, see, that's a good question to ask this person. Uh, can you conceive of anything like that happening now, that uh, a new religion hits the scene, and all of a sudden, uh, the people that have been Christians and Jews and Muslims, etc., uh, by the 
by the thousands and the thousands, they began to leave this and, and to embrace this new religion. And so the church buildings are, are mostly empty and not many people are worshiping Christ and the synagogues are mostly empty and everything like that. You'd think, well, man, there'd have to be something that we know it's not going to happen that way. There, there would have to be something extremely powerful in the way of evidence that these people were buying into because they were all anytime a person has been brought up a certain way and they have emotional ties to it and they change that doesn't prove that they're right on this change but the evidence has to be pretty strong uh, I know that I've had a change in my thinking over the last years relative to uh, some various doctrines in Christianity and the change I wound up thinking totally different than what I did in my early years well that change didn't come easy because of the that I had been schooled and taught and preached a, a certain way there is no way that I would have made that change unless I was persuaded beyond any doubt in my mind that I was wrong I mean, it wasn't. I wasn't in the category of somebody that had just been taught these particular things. Uh, that I had to be persuaded beyond any doubt in my mind, because because the emotions and everything were were attached to something else. Well, I think that's true on anything. You you just don't give up anything you have an emotional attachment to, and you've been taught from a child, unless the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. So they they've said indirectly that the evidence was, was absolutely overwhelming. Okay, now, pardon me, the, Pliny goes on, and I'm going to read the letters because we're getting you know short on time and all, and, he, and, and you can read, he gives some excerpts, but you can read his letters. And Trajan responds to Pliny. And they acknowledge the, uh, that Christians, there are Christians that believe so strong that they will go to their death before they'll deny Christ that they seem to have no fear of death. In fact, Trajan tells Pliny, the way that you can tell whether or not the person is a Christian is to ask him to deny Christ and worship the Roman gods. And said a true Christian won't do it. And so that was the test he was to put them to do. When somebody made an accusation that this person is a Christian, then Pliny would just simply, if the guy would deny Christ and pay homage to the Roman gods, then he was set free. Okay? But here's what we're finding out is that these Christians believe so strong that even though they knew all they had to do was deny Christ and pay homage to the Roman gods and they could have their life, and yet they didn't do it. And they go to their... their Justin Martyr, our, our word martyr comes from the Christian, Justin Martyr, whose life was taken. All he had to do to save his life, he lived in the 100s, somewhere around 150, He's, his life is taken. All he had to do to save his life is to deny Jesus and to embrace uh, verbally. I mean, the Roman gods, it's all he had to do. He refused to do it. Obviously, he was persuaded pretty strong. In fact, I wonder how many people today in this country that are professing Christians, that if they had a gun held to them and said, just deny Christianity and walk off alive, or you, you state that you continue to state you believe in Jesus and we're going to kill you. Now, I wonder how many Christians we, we would really have, you know, if that was the situation. But I'm saying that obviously, uh, that if you did that, 
What would you say of the person who went up and, and absolutely refused to deny? You'd say, hey, one thing for sure, he believed beyond any doubt. You know, there's something has convinced that person pretty strong. All right, what happened is a number of pagans actually, in fact, do you know that Justin Martyr, it's interesting to read about his conversion. One of the first things that caught his attention about Christians is the fact that they were dying for what they believed. And that made him very curious. The fact that these people would die before they would give up their belief. That caused his examination of the Christian faith that led to his becoming a believer. And when you read, Justin Martyr did a lot of writing. We have a, n a number of material from him. He, he constantly speaks of his ev the evidences for the belief in Jesus. He talks about prophecy and the fulfillment, the various eyewitness accounts. The man is absolutely 100% convinced. So here is a pagan, very well educated and very intelligent in the second century, who has become so convinced, he's heard every argument that the Jews and the pagans could give, and has become so convinced that he would go to his death based on that belief. Well, he goes further that he takes the, uh, his first step is in the historians and shows all that they acknowledge. From that, he goes to Gnostic sources. These were uh, considered heretic Christians in the early part of the second century that were withdrawn from by the mainstream Christians. But yet he gives their writings and shows all the various things that they did believe concerning Jesus and things of that nature. Then, probably one of the most important things he does, and I thought I'd get there, and we didn't tonight, uh, this is something that only in recent years that I come to realize myself, and that is that uh, the New Testament itself contains a number of creeds that were oral creeds that circulated among the Christians within just a couple of years after the crucifixion of Christ, from the very first. And these creeds were incorporated in the New Testament. But they were oral creeds circulating initially. Uh, the best example, there's several, but let's just turn to one example anyway. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, look at that. Uh, beginning with verse 3, Paul says, What I received, I pass unto you. I passed unto you. Now, Paul is writing this letter <coughs> somewhere around 56 A.D., and so it's 26 years since the crucifixion of Christ. Paul himself became a Christian within about three to five years after the crucifixion of Christ. And then he says, what I received, I passed unto you. Okay, now this, this word, I received, and I passed unto you, this was a technical, was technical language used by the rabbis of that day to indicate that they were passing on a tradition. And so, when, and Paul uses this term several times in the New Testament. And so he's telling you here that this is a tradition that is being circulated even before he becomes a Christian, and he had passed it unto them. And so although we're reading this in a, in a document that's 26 years after the crucifixion of Christ, Paul is, is here incorporating a creed that was circulating in the church right from the very first. Okay? that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, buried, was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He appeared to Peter, then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, 
then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. Well, obviously, you can see there that Paul incorporating this creed and then adding his own experience to it, that uh, these statements concerning the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ and the evidence for it were circulated immediately while the people were alive who could challenge these events. But the interesting thing was, the more they challenged it, the more people that became Christian. And, and, and keep in mind that uh, the first thousands of people that were converted were converted in the very city where Jesus was crucified and had the empty tomb there and were aware of the event and, and, and everything like that. But suffice it to say, you could continue on with the creeds that were circulated then, and then you could continue on to the some of the archaeological discoveries that verify some of the, or at least collaborate, to give you an example on some of the archaeological discoveries, when you read about the census that took place at the time of the birth of Jesus, through archaeological discoveries, we can show that it was very common for Rome during that period of time to have census. We can show that the typical way of having the census is for people to go home uh, to wherever they was born. And then we can show that a census took place right about that very time when Jesus was born. In fact, this was questioned for a while, and new archaeological information has, has verified even the fact that a census took place right at that point in time. So again, this doesn't prove that specific event, but it verifies all the particulars there, and you have that kind of collaboration uh, with archaeology. All right? Suffice it to say, then, when, you, when you'd add up all the facts, you could take historical facts. By the way, those creeds, the reason they're so important is because uh, historians who are not Christian and who, re who will reject the inspiration of the New Testament will embrace all of these creeds. They acknowledge them as being creeds that circulated uh, in the early church and that this is what the, the disciples believed and everyone like that. So we come to the historians and they say, he lived, he taught, he was crucified. He was buried, the tomb was empty three days later. Christianity, shortly after that, really begins to spread. It eats up the Roman Empire. By the time we're in the second century that... Uh, people are abandoning the temples. Very few sacrifices are being offered. The Roman leaders are becoming disturbed because so many people are converting to Christianity. Secular history will bear witness that the early converts believed so strong that they died. They bear witness that early Christians in the first century will burn at the stake, that they were crucified, that they were thrown in the arenas uh, with animals turned loose on them. All they had to do to escape all of this is, is to de deny. Uh, they will bear witness to the fact that the apostles went out and proclaimed this message and they were bold and they were willing to go to their death. Well, then the question comes, how do we explain the, the transformation in the apostles' lives? You know, with uh, you sure don't explain it with the swoon theory and you don't explain it with them stealing a dead body and being this type of person. And so all of these, by the time you're through, you can gather a body of evidence where you can make the statement that if you limit yourself to nothing, except historical evidence that you can say that the death, burial, and, and the resurrection of Christ has a body of evidence behind it that's like nothing else you can read in ancient history. And, that, that, and then, of course, later on, you go to studies about the, the documents themselves and the where they're handed down and things of this nature. But I think not only do we need to know this, but I believe that when you're 
when you're talking to your children that they need to understand that, uh, that number one, this is historical fact, just like historical facts you read in school, and that what you're teaching about Jesus and everything like that, this is historical fact. There's a lot of people out there that are, that are ignorant uh, of the information. There's a lot of trying to get away from it because primarily because of the morality that's there. Uh, we've got a society that wants to live in a certain way, and the, the Bible's the only book that flies right in the face of this. And when you get down to the nitty-gritty of the, the reason why the anti-Christian sentiment is, is, is becoming so strong, you're getting down to the fact that uh, whether you're talking about homosexuals or just the sexual permissiveness or so many other things that's going on that everybody wants to embrace, that the Bible stands there as the one book that is condemning of, of all of this. Um, I've got a question since you just brought that up. It relates to something that you said earlier. Okay, you said that Rome is immoral as you can get. It's worse than America. I mean, as far as anti-Christian sentiments. Uh -huh. There's all kinds of pagan practices, prostitution in temples and things like that. Okay, obviously the people like that. They wanted to do that. Then Christianity comes in and you have all these people, you know, all this evidence and stuff, and it, and it gradually takes over the Roman Empire. Okay, there's sort of two questions. How is it that they are worse off than we are? We're in a society, like you said, that wants to live that way. Okay, Rome's like that, evidently, from what I understand. But yet they changed, and then not only that, how prosperous were the Romans? Like, we're prosperous. Our nation is prosperous. And that must be a contributing cause. Well, I don't need God. Well, how, how, does, how was the Romans, what was their society like? I mean, did they need God, so to speak? Okay. And then how does how is that, and then they, they, want, they obviously like doing that stuff, and then so the evidence was there. So is it just our approach totally? I mean, I, but some people are going to reject anyway, but those two things. Okay. First, the, the best refutation of sin is allowing it to bear its own fruit. Rome had suffered the consequence of, of all of that sin. And uh, they had a society that was an ugly place to live as a result of the, the sin that was there. I mean, there was slavery. There was every kind of ungodliness imaginable. And all the consequences were in that, in that society. And so when Christianity hit it, it was like light hitting darkness. It just really stood out. Uh, all right, then they hit it with that tremendous evidence for the resurrection of Christ. And so it came, there came that Christian way of life and all that sincerity and all, and then that tremendous evidence for the resurrection of Christ. There are no hypocrite Christians in the first century. I mean, see, you're not going to, why become a Christian unless you're a sincere believer? And no hypocrite Christians. All right, in the United States, you've got a situation where, uh, Christianity has been the thing for a number of generations, 200 years now. Uh, as a result of it being the majority religion, there are a lot of hypocrites within the Christian churches. Because, see, it, it, is, it has been socially popular and socially advantageous to be a Christian in our society. That if you want to do business and things like that, it's, it's socially advantageous to you. For example, if you want to run to office in... Uh, uh, for office in, in uh, Nashville, you need to get out and make your appearances in the various churches and shake hands and things like that and let them know that you're a religious person, you know, that it's, ad, it's definitely ad, advantageous. So, number one, we don't have this contrast between uh, uh, truth or light and darkness because Christianity itself is so full of hypocrisy. 
Okay, the the countries that have really turned against Christianity, like uh, say the the communist countries, the countries behind the Iron Curtain, you know, before the curtain came up. If you go back and read about the Roman Catholic Church and the Russian Orthodox Church and and what and the way that Christianity had deteriorated over the centuries, you can understand why they hated religion. In in the way, if you look at the way the Catholic Church treated Galileo and uh, and Copernicus and people like that, then you can see why that uh, that science is very wary of of religion. In fact, you might might even make an argument that. Uh, that in some phases of science it was held back for a period of time because of the dominance of the, of the Roman Catholic Church. So you have in this country then Christianity, when people think of Christianity, you don't think of a group of individuals who are striving to relive Jesus in their life and who believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and who have this family type relationship and, and, and who who are out here presenting Christianity from the standpoint of uh, this is the evidence for his resurrection, etc. You know, what you have is the Roman Catholic Church, with all its corruption, and <coughs> and, and, and I guess every mafia member is a member of the Catholic Church. Uh, that uh, uh, you got the Catholic Church with all its corruption. You got the TV evangelists with their greedy hands uh, pulling all the money in that, that they can in. You've got the Jim and Tammies and the Jimmy Swaggards. Uh, in a world where people are starving to death, our answer to the problem is to build multi-million dollar church buildings with big steeples and, and things of that nature. And, uh, that, and we're, known for, we're known as a people to get dressed up and go to fine buildings and all on, on Sunday. Uh, you know yourself that, that you regularly meet people who go to church, uh, who cuss, or run around on their mate, or do any other wrong things. So Christianity, if you're not a person that is into the Bible already and understands it, can look pretty ridiculous to you. I can understand why Ted Turner would make some of the statements that he did, you know, about, about Christianity, because he's not looking at the Christianity I'm looking at. He's looking at what is being practiced out here in the name, uh, you know, of Christianity. All right, then you hear sermons. For example, I'll just use Grundy County. If, if you went out here to hear a typical sermon promoting Christianity, uh, the emphasis would be on the emotion. Let Jesus come into your heart. You know, kick the old devil out, and and go to the mourner's bench, and and uh, and we'll pray. And if you're sincere and everything like that, Jesus will come in. Well, uh, what if you here you've gone to an educational system that has taught you the scientific method of thinking, and uh, and you're taught to evaluate material and everything like that, or you you look at the groups and you start to visit around. And everybody seems more concerned about persuading you that their group is right. Uh, you, you go to Seventh-day Adventist and they want to persuade you that their group is right. You go to the Church of Christ and they want to persuade you that they're the only true group around. Everybody else is going to hell. And so you listen to some guy make some statement like that. And, and then you go over here to holding this group and they're swinging from the chandeliers, you know. And that's what you've got going. Well, that, I'm saying that is. Uh, and, and so what is happening if Christianity falls in our society, it'll be because of what has happened within uh, the, the system. All right, where Christianity had its birth, it's no longer strong. Where Christianity is growing by leaps and bounds right now is in Africa, in Mexico, uh, in South America, behind what used to be the Iron Curtain. We, we, I got a letter today from the 
from the Alabama Christian School of Religion, you know, wanting people to agree to go to Russia and, and use the Bible and teach English and all that. There's just simply more people over there than we can even furnish missionaries for. And so they have suffered the consequences of, of kicking Christianity out the door. The good that is in our society is because of Christian influence, but most people don't realize it. They just simply take it for granted. I mean, the good that is there is because of the influence of Christianity, but it, it's just simply taken for granted. But what they do know is the hypocrisy that they see, and I think that as Christians, we not only need to, to present Christianity in the right way, but we need to be more vigilant in the churches uh, in, in promoting what true Christianity is. There's a, there's a difference between Christianity, I think, and churchanity. That uh, Christianity is, if, if a person doesn't want to repent of their sins and strive to emulate Christ in their life, then they really don't want Christianity because that's, that's what it's all about. So the prosperity, I mean, that, the, in the first century, the Romans were kind of, it sounds like it was independent of how prosperous they were. didn't matter. So you can't, I mean, you know, well, information on well, see, on prosperity, it's hard to evaluate because in all societies, up until our democratic society, you tend to have your wealthy few at the top, and then your everybody else is pretty low. That we are unusual in that we have such a large middle class, and and prosperity is spread uh, so evenly in our society. We still have our high at the top, but as a society. Yeah, I'd say that our prosperity is a factor. So Rome yeah. was probably not like that. They probably had a lot of people who were... Well, Roman citizens would have been considered prosperous for that day. You know, Roman citizens... See, most of Rome was not made up of Roman citizens. And they did have prosperous people, you know, for, uh, for that day. But no, not in the sense that we would have it in this country. I mean, they didn't. They, there was not the same kind of opportunities or anything like that. You want to break refreshments in the yeah. back to it? But I agree that uh, the, our prosperity is... Look at Western Europe as contrasted with Eastern Europe. Uh, we are very... We're so busy having fun and, and buying things that it's hard to even take time, you know, to be interested in anything else. 